Well, good morning. There's a delay in the lights there. How are you? Nice. That's good to hear, Carlos. My name is Kyle Toddy. I'm the missions and outreach pastor uh, here at River Oak Church. Uh, and I want to start by saying just a couple of things. Um, I know we've said this a few times, but I think it bears, uh, it bears repeating um, that you guys stepped up in such an awesome way over the holiday season. Um, just with all the ministries we have going on in the community to make sure that our community knows who we are and what we're about and to show the love of God. Um, we do different ministries throughout the holiday season like Thanksgiving baskets, Operation Christmas Child, Angel Tree, and you guys step up every single year. It's an awesome thing to see and to watch how God uses a body of believers like this in this place to bless our community. Uh, again, we, we served over 200 students uh, with Angel Tree this year. And um, each of those 200 students got an awesome gift uh, for Christmas that they otherwise would not have received. And with it comes the love of God and the message of Jesus. Um, so that was awesome to see. And then uh, tons of other toys went to different ministries in the community to help even, even more families. Um, in Operation Christmas Child, I think we packed over 700 boxes this year um, to go around the world to carry the love of Jesus with them and the message of the, the hope that we have in him. Uh, so again, thank you guys for that. Thank you to, uh, I could start naming people, but I, I know I'm gonna forget some body, uh, Christy Rad for the work she does in Angel Tree, um, for Summer Michelson and the work she did with OCC, um, Kathy Koontz and Rachel Philippone uh, for the work they did with Thanks Thanksgiving Baskets and so many others um, that served in such a great way this season to make sure that we love our community well. So again, thank you guys for that. It was awesome uh, to be a part of it yet again uh, this year. I also wanna say that I'm actually supposed to be in Africa at the moment. Uh, so if I start coughing uncontrollably, I apologize. They can cut me off and you can't hear me as much. Um, but we ended up getting sick over uh, Christmas and had to cancel um, this Africa trip. Uh, but God had a plan because a couple others that were supposed to go with me ended up getting sick in the last couple of days. Um, and it would have been a mess to go and travel to Africa and to get sick and to get stuck. So um, we are grateful for God's uh, sovereignty and his, his watching over us, but we're also kind of bummed that we couldn't go and serve in Africa this time uh, this year. But I wanna ask you guys to be praying for me and my family uh, as we prepare to leave in about a month, a month and a half or so, mid-February, uh, we're going to Lesotho. So I'm taking my wife and my kids uh, to Lesotho, Africa in uh, the middle of February for about four weeks. Um, so I want you guys to please be praying for us, one, for our sanity, that we can travel um, on a 16-hour plane ride with two little kids uh, without much of an incident, and uh, of course, that, that God would use us in, in mighty ways as we work uh, in Lesotho, Africa, sharing the gospel, um, discipling those who've come to faith. Uh, we're excited about the opportunity, uh, so be, please be praying for us, and we'll keep you updated on, um, on that trip as it draws, uh, draws near. If you have your Bibles this morning, please open them up to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31. We're gonna be studying this morning the end of the Old Testament. Uh, and what I wanna do by studying the very end of the Old Testament is draw our attention to one single point. Have you ever, at any point in your life, uh, in any different circumstance, have you ever missed the whole point of something? My wife and I, uh, a few years ago, purchased uh, a house 
uh, here in, in Great Bridge uh, that is incredibly old. Uh, it was built in 1870, so you can imagine the amount of house projects that are going on at one time. Uh, there's usually about 10 plus projects happening at any given time. It is a, uh, a constant construction zone at my house. There's always something going on. Uh, but have you ever missed the whole point of something? Because I know I do often, and I'll tell you where I miss the whole point um, on a regular basis. Maybe some of you can identify with me. As I'm doing a project on my house, as I'm working on, on my home, uh, a lot of times I'll get into a project and what do you end up having to do? Go to Home Depot, right? It's inevitable. You cannot get away from going to Home Depot when you do a project at your house. So what I'll tend, tend to do is I'll work on something at my home. I'll run to Home Depot. It's only a few minutes away from my house without writing anything down. And I'll walk into Home Depot and inevitably they've got a hundred foot line of things up front of things that you want you to buy that draw your attention, that you walk in. And for some reason, when I walk into Home Depot, uh, I know for my wife, this is Target, my mind immediately shuts off and I don't know where I'm at or what I'm doing. And I, for some reason, end up picking up LED lights and drill bits and things that I don't need and spend 20 minutes walking around a store uh, aimlessly. So I'll walk around 10, 20 minutes and think, what am I here for in the first place? I've completely missed the whole point of why I came to Home Depot. And I'll go home, continue working on a project and realize I forgot something. So what will happen is I will go back to Home Depot and the same thing happens again. I tend to miss the whole point when it comes to walking in that store. Uh, and I think we can probably all, without getting political, no matter what side of, of whatever aisle you're on, it doesn't matter. We can probably all agree at some point that our government tends to miss the whole point. There's many places in life that we miss the whole point and it causes issues, right? So sometimes when, when I miss the whole point of why I'm at Home Depot in the first place, all it is is I'm just wasting time and gas and I have to go back to Home Depot. It's not really affecting anybody other than me, uh, but sometimes when we miss the whole point, it can affect other people as well. And sometimes, as we're gonna look at this morning through God's word, is missing the whole point can lead to life or death circumstances. And in the case of understanding the good news of Jesus, it can lead to eternal life or eternal death circumstances. So if you have your Bibles, I would like to ask you to turn to Jeremiah 31. We're gonna be in verse 31 through 33 this morning. And out of reverence of reading God's word, I would like to ask you guys to stand as we read. For those of you in this place who um, maybe you don't have a relationship with Jesus, what I hope and pray that you'll hear this morning from God's word is missing the whole point has uh, dire circumstances. It has dire uh, consequences, excuse me. Um, for, for those of you who don't have a relationship with Jesus, what I hope that you hear from God's word, what the whole point of this whole Christianity thing is in the first place. For those of us who do have a relationship with Jesus, what I pray that we'll see starting a new year is that God would, would give us clarity on why we even come to church in the first place why we even do what we're called to do in the first place, that we would not miss the whole point as we've walked our Christian lives, some of us for maybe a year, some of us for maybe 40, 50 plus years, you've walked with Jesus. Let us re reorient our minds back to the whole point of why we do what we do and what Jesus has done for us. So Jeremiah chapter 31, starting in verse 31, it says this. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant 
which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant, which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart, I will write it. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for the opportunity you give us to be in this place at this time. I pray that you would give us good health and good understanding about what we, what we read in your word, that you would change our hearts and our minds as we come to realize the truth that is written, the promises that you have given us, that we would come to a place um, on, a, on a, re- a repeated basis, that, that daily we would come to you and reorient and refocus our minds around what you've promised for us and what you've called us to do. So I pray that as a body of believers here in Chesapeake, Virginia, that you could give us a clarity of mind to understand the whole point, the reason that you've done what you've done in the first place and what we have been called to do because of it. We lift up your name this morning and I pray that you're glorified through uh, the reading of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So what I wanna do this morning is actually walk back through uh, the end of the Old Testament. And I'm gonna hopefully do it in a, uh, in a clear way. We're not gonna spend uh, too much time uh, digging through the details of the Old Testament, but let me catch you up kind of on where we're gonna be. If you have your Bibles open, go ahead and turn to the book of Ezra. Ezra and Nehemiah. We're gonna walk through these two books this morning and hopefully what we'll see is the whole point of Christianity and how Israel missed that point. And we're gonna see that hopefully clearly from Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, But before we get there, let me explain uh, kind of where we're at up to this point. In Deuteronomy, so the very beginning of the the Old Testament, God makes a covenant with his people, Israel. And this covenant he makes with them is based upon their obedience to him. This covenant was never meant to actually bring about life. As we understand uh, from the New Testament, it was always meant to bring about the realization of sin and those who were under the law. So God, at the very beginning of the Bible, even told Israel that this was the, the, the promise that he was making with them, that he was making this covenant, that they were going to break that covenant, that things would not go well with them as a people, that they would be scattered about and become slaves yet again in the nations that surround them. And one day they will call out to him, return to him, and he will gather them back together. Now, what Israel missed, the point that they they missed as a people is that God said, I'm gonna make this new covenant with you. So in Deuteronomy, we find out what's gonna happen. It all plays out in the Old Testament, just as God said it was gonna play out. And as we read in Jeremiah, he says, I'm gonna make a new covenant with you. Not like the covenant that I made with Moses. Not like that first covenant. This will be different. And in this new covenant, I'm gonna give you what? A new heart. We know from Deuteronomy chapter five and Genesis chapter six that the problem with man is the heart. The heart cannot be obedient to God because of what sin has done to it. So you have this tension in the Old Testament between God giving these commands for Israel to follow and knowing that they don't have a heart within them to actually follow those commands. So this tension plays out throughout the Old Test, the whole Old Testament, and we see it come to kind of a culmination at the very end of the Old Testament. But all along the way, God's prophets spoke to Israel and said, if you turn back to God, 
He will make a new covenant with you. When this Messiah comes that he's promised, this new covenant will come and it will happen. Have faith in the promises of God. So all throughout the Old Testament, this is being, uh, being played out until you get up to Ezra and Nehemiah. What's fascinating about Ezra and Nehemiah, um, if you haven't found it in your Bible, you can feel free to use the table of contents because apparently I don't know where it is either. There it is. So Ezra and Nehemiah, in our Old Testament, it's kind of stuck in the middle of our Old Testament. It's in, it's in a kind of a weird place, but chronologically, it, it basically ends the Old Testament. So Ezra and Nehemiah are writing at a time and they're operating at a time uh, when Israel, they were a nation. Uh, they lived in this city in this big, this big place that God had given them. The temple was in there. And then all of a sudden it all falls apart as God had said it would fall apart. The temple is destroyed. The walls of the city are brought down and Israel is scattered about to become slaves yet again in the nations that surround them. We call it uh, the exile. So Ezra and Nehemiah are writing during the, the time of the exile. And what you're gonna see is they begin to try to return back to God, but in the wrong way by missing the whole point. So Ezra and Nehemiah are writing at the very end of the Old Testament, and there are a few prophets writing at the same time, uh, but we see here chronologically this ends the Old Testament as we wait for Messiah to come. So Ezra and Nehemiah, if you've never read the two books, they're pretty short and they're incredibly fascinating. In the Hebrew Old Testament, um, the Hebrew uh, uh, order of the Old Testament, Ezra and Nehemiah are one single book. Uh, it doesn't really matter much, but our, our Old Testament split them into two. But if you read them as one single book, the picture kind of becomes clearer about what is happening here in the life of Israel. So we're gonna see how Israel here misses the whole point. So with the time we have left, let's walk through these two books in their entirety. Are you ready? All right, let's do it. So Ezra, look at chapter one of the book of Ezra, starting in verse one. We're gonna read just a few verses here. He says, it says this, now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of who? Jeremiah, right? The guy that we just read. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of his, all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. So we see here at the very beginning of Ezra that this pagan king, uh, who, who is kind of, uh, who's king of a big area and some of, some of Israel is now under his rule. This pagan king is stirred up by the Lord to send back Israel to the place uh, which they used to live in Jerusalem to rebuild the temple of God. So we see at the very beginning of the book that this seems like it's starting well, right? This pagan king says, go back to your place, rebuild your temple for your God so that you can live and be at peace as a people, right? So it seems like this is starting really well, but we'll see it quickly unravels. Flip over to chapter three of Ezra, starting in verse 10. So what happens is this king says, hey, Israel, go back and rebuild this temple. So the details begin to unfold. They gather back to some of their people and say, hey, go and rebuild the temple. So they go back to Jerusalem. The temple is destroyed and they begin to rebuild the temple. Now look at chapter three, verse 10 
It says, now when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their, uh, in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. They sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, for he is good, his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Now watch, you're gonna see in Ezra and Nehemiah details that Israel should have been paying attention to, and this is one of them. Verse 12, yet many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' households, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, while many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard far away. So what you have here in this picture is the old, the old men and women who remembered the former temple, remembered it in all its glory, how big it was and how beautiful it was. When they go back to rebuild and they lay the foundation of the temple, they begin to weep. Why? Because the temple that they're rebuilding is so much smaller. It's so much uh, less uh, uh, grand than the first temple was. So they are weeping thinking this temple is going to be horrible. This is not where our God should dwell. It should be bigger and better. But the young people are clapping and thinking this is great. You know, we're rebuilding the temple and it is all well. This is one of those details in the story that should pique our attention and let us think something is off here, right? So for some reason, the, the old people of Israel are thinking this temple is not what it should be. So as we walk through Ezra, of course, for the sake of time, we're not gonna read the whole book. Ezra is only 10 chapters long and, and it continues the story of them rebuilding this temple. Uh, they go back and ask for more stuff and they bring stuff to the temple and they rebuild it. I think in about chapter six or so, the temple is, is finished and they, uh, they dedicate the temple. And um, so the story plays out until you get to the book of Nehemiah. So Nehemiah continues the book of Ezra and we're gonna see exactly what's gonna happen in Nehemiah and it gets, uh, it gets pretty crazy. So Nehemiah, uh, excuse me, Ezra is a scribe. So he is a, a teacher of the law of Israel. Nehemiah has a, a different job. He is not a teacher of Israel. He's actually working for another pagan king. He is the cupbearer to uh, this other king and this other nation. Uh, and he is, uh, has an ear with the king. So the same kind of thing plays out in Nehemiah where Nehemiah tells the king that he is distressed because his people are no longer in Jerusalem. So the king says, hey, why don't you go back and help them rebuild the city of Jerusalem, rebuild the walls. So Nehemiah earns favor with this king and goes and helps rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So we know the temple is not what it should be. Now the walls are gonna become not what they should be either. So Nehemiah takes some people to go and help rebuild the walls. The details are incredible and fascinating um, and there's a lot that we could say, but what I wanna do is flip us to the very end of the book. Nehemiah chapter 10. If you've never read Nehemiah, I would definitely uh, encourage you to do it. Chapter eight and chapter nine are some of the most fascinating chapters, I think, of the whole Old Testament. Uh, if you ever wanted a summary of the Old Testament, Nehemiah chapter nine gives you an entire summary of the Old Testament from beginning to end. And what happens here in Nehemiah chapter 10 through the end of the book is we see the very end of the story being written. So Nehemiah chapter uh, nine ends with, 
um, chapter nine, verse 38, because of all this, we are making an agreement in writing and on the sealed documents are the names of our leaders, our Levites and priests. So Nehemiah says, because we have broken this covenant with our God, because we've been disobedient, God has given us over to become slaves and to become exiles in these places. Because we have disobeyed his commandments, we are in the state that we are in now. So Nehemiah says, look guys, we're gonna, we're gonna uh, pull up our bootstraps here and do our best to keep the law, right? So that's what plays out in chapter eight and chapter nine is Israel uh, commits to re-entering the first covenant that God made with Israel. So they said, we're gonna do this guys. We're gonna do our best to re-enter this covenant and to please God. So the end of chapter nine, it says, we're gonna, we're gonna fill out this document, put our names on it. We're gonna seal it. God, hold us accountable, And oh, he does. Look at chapter 10. Starting in chapter 10, verse 28. It says this. Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all those who had knowledge and understanding are joining with their kinsmen, their nobles, and are taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given through Moses, God's servant, and to keep and to observe all the commandments of of God, our Lord, and his ordinances and statutes. So we have this picture. Israel, realizing that for centuries they have disobeyed God, they have turned to false gods and worshiped false gods of the lands that surrounded them. They have disobeyed his law and his commandments, and now they've realized what they've done. They're repenting of their sins and saying, you know what? We're gonna re-enter into that old covenant that God made with Moses and we're gonna do the law. Israel is about to miss the whole point of the promises of God. So what we see here in chapter 10 is them committing to do this law. Now, what we're gonna see in just a few verses is Israel commits to four things. They're gonna do four things that, that, that the law says they should do. They say, okay, guys, we're gonna do this, right? And systematically, they're gonna say four things and then they're gonna do the exact opposite. Look in verse 30. It should be on the screen here. And that we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. So in the law of of God that he gave to Israel, we see that they are not supposed to intermarry with the nations that surrounded them. And that was only because God did not want them to intermarry with those people because they served false gods and worshiped idols. He says, if you intermarry with those nations, then you're gonna turn away from me and you're gonna turn to those false gods. Well, what happens? It's exactly what happens. They disobey God. They intermarry with those other nations and begin to serve false gods and turn away from the one true God. So the first thing that they say is we will not intermarry with other nations, right? We're committing as a people, we're gonna stop intermarrying with the people that surround us. And we know from the prophets that that's already a problem because God loves all the nations. Look in verse 31. As for the peoples of the land who bring wares or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or a holy day and we will forego the crops the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. So point two here is that they promise God that they're going to keep the Sabbath, They're not gonna buy and sell on the Sabbath, right? So we're not gonna intermarry with the people around us. We're not gonna buy on the Sabbath. We're gonna keep it holy. Look at verse 32. 
We also placed ourselves under obligation to contribute yearly one third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. So now they're committing to tithing again, right? So now they're saying, all right, we've not tithed in in a couple hundred years. Let's get back to it, right? We promise we're gonna start tithing again to the Levites. Now flip on over to chapter 13. Chapter 13 is the end of the book. And chronologically, it's the end of the Old Testament. In chapter 13, verse one, we're gonna see the fourth point. On that day, they read aloud from the book of Moses in the hearing of all the people. And there was found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. Now, why is that even a problem? Does anyone know who is a Moabite that's in the lineage of Jesus? Ruth, right? So we we see that they're reading the law and, and missing the whole point that God had given them in the first place. Ruth, who is a Moabite, is actually in the genealogy of Jesus, but now they're saying we're gonna kick the Moabites out of our assembly, right? Up to this point in the book, when the temple is rebuilt, the walls of the city, they, they, they come and inhabit the city. God's presence never comes to dwell with them in that temple. So that should be another red flag, but here they are committing themselves to continuing the law that had already been broken. And they said, no Moabite or Ammonite should enter the assembly of God because they did not meet the sons of Israel with bread or water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. That's in Numbers 24. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. So when they heard the law, they excluded all foreigners from Israel. Now, if they just read or understood the prophet Isaiah, they would realize why this is wrong. God said, let the foreigners come in so they can know who I am. But now here they are reading the old law, the old covenant that they've broken and saying, we're gonna kick all foreigners out from our assembly. No Moabite, no Ammonite, nobody can come in here but Jews, right? So they're missing the whole point. So four things they said they're gonna do. They're not gonna intermarry with the people around them. They're not gonna buy or sell on the Sabbath. They're gonna tithe again and they're gonna kick all foreigners out of Israel. Now watch what happens in just one chapter. If you look at chapter 13, verse six, it says, but during all this time, this is Nehemiah speaking, I was not in Jerusalem for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had gone to the king. After some time, however, I asked leave from the king. So, Many years have passed, and now Nehemiah is asking the king again, can I go back and check on my people living in Jerusalem to see how things are going? So at this point in the story, you should think that Nehemiah is gonna go back and he's gonna find things are going well. They're keeping the law. God is with them again, but watch what happens. Verse seven, I came to Jerusalem and learned about the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah by preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. It was very displeasing to me, so I threw out all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. Tobiah, we know earlier in the story, is not an Israelite. Uh, He is a foreigner. So we see systematically this whole thing begins to fall apart. So now Tobiah's living in the temple, so Nehemiah comes back and kicks that guy out. Like, you've already broken the first promise you made with God. Now look at this in verse 10. I also discovered that the portions of the Levites had not been given them. So the Levites and the singers who performed the service had gone away, each to his own field. So now we see that they're not tithing to the Levites, right? So they're they're, uh, letting foreigners in the temple. They're not tithing, right? This whole thing begins to unravel. Look at verse 15. 
In those days, I saw in Judah, some who were treading the wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sacks of grain, loading them with donkeys, as well as wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads. And they brought them into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I admonished them on the day they sold food. So now what? They're buying and selling on the Sabbath, which they promised they wouldn't do, right? Again, they're missing the whole point. Look in verse 23 at the end of the book. It says, in those days, excuse me, I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. As for their children, half spoken the language of Ashdod, and none of of them was able to speak the language of Judah, but the language of his own people. So systematically, the four things that they promised God that they were going to do again, they begin to disobey, right? One after another, so that we see this whole list is now been crossed off. Why? We know from the very beginning of the Old Testament that God says, I wish that you had a heart in you to keep my commandments, but I know that you don't. So you're going to disobey my commandments. I'm going to scatter you about in the nations that surround you. And one day I'm gonna come back for you. I'm gonna bring with me a new covenant. This covenant's not gonna be contingent upon your obedience to the, to the law, the first covenant. This new covenant will be for me to bring you a new heart so that you can obey me. So Israel missed the whole point and what we're gonna see here at the very end of Nehemiah is something fascinating. Look in verse 25. Nehemiah loses his cool. So I contended with them and cursed them and struck some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters to their sons nor take their daughters for your sons for yourselves. And the story ends with Nehemiah punching people in the face, ripping out their hair and yelling at Israel. And so ends the Old Testament. Nehemiah at the very end says, God, remember me for good. These people are not, but just look at me and remember me for what I've done. And so ends the Old Testament. So what we see here in the life of Israel is they missed the whole point. As we study the life of Israel, as we study the Old Testament, we see in the promise of the prophets of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, of um, Malachi and Zechariah at the end of of the Old Testament, we see the promises of God that he's going to come and do a work that we could not do for ourselves. Israel missed the whole point. He said in Hebrews chapter 11, you can go back and read. He says, all of these men in the old, men and women of the Old Testament who, are, who we'll see in heaven one day, they believed in the promises of God. They did not trust in the law to bring about life. They had faith in the promises of God. Israel missed the whole point and the story ends in not such a great way with Nehemiah pulling out people's hair. And now we wait. For 400 years, Israel, there, there's silence in Israel. No prophet, no one's speaking. And it gives rise to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and those who try to keep the law for eternal life. Look over at John chapter five and let's read Jesus's words. John chapter five, Jesus summarizes it very clearly. Jesus is speaking here at the beginning of John to um, religious leaders in Israel. And he says this, John five thirty nine. he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is these that testify about me. 
You see, Israel misses the whole point that the scriptures, the Old Testament, was not meant to lead them to eternal life by them doing the best that they could to keep the law. The scriptures was meant to lead them to the feet of the Messiah. And when he shows up, they don't recognize him because their hearts were not prepared to recognize him. So let us today, as we close, think about the implications for the story and the life of Israel on our lives. For those of you who don't know Jesus, I think it's pretty obvious that the whole point of Christianity is not for us to do our best to please God. The whole point of Christianity is not for us to read a a book of do's and don'ts and for us to do our best to keep them to please God. God says your best works are like filthy rags before him. There's nothing we can do to please God. So God, what did he have to do? Make a new covenant. And that new covenant was meant to come and provide eternal life for us. Not by anything that we could do on our own, but by the work that God has done for us in Jesus. The whole point of Christianity is not about pulling up your bootstraps and doing better. It's not about lifting yourself back up out of the dust and doing your best to continue pressing on that is antithetical to the good news of Jesus. Our culture wants to tell us that, that we must do our best, that, that our status in society is based upon how much money we earn or how hard we work or how many hours we put in during the week. And God says that is the opposite of what I'm telling you. The whole point to this life, the whole point to following Jesus is not about you trying your best. It's about repenting of your sins, realizing that your heart is broken. There's nothing that you can do to earn favor with a holy God. So God came to dwell among us, which we just celebrated in Christmas. He came to dwell among us and live a life without sin, to be the final sacrifice, to be the propitiation for our sins, to to pay the penalty for our sins so that those who would repent and put their faith and trust in him could have eternal life. You see, Israel missed the whole point. They had the prophets telling them, look, trust in the promises of God. Messiah is coming to do a work that you can't do. And they missed the whole point. Let us not be in danger of missing the whole point of this whole thing. The whole point of this is not so that we can uh, have eternal life by doing our best to keep it. The whole point of this is what Jesus says to point us to him so that we can believe in him and have eternal life. So for those of you who don't have a relationship with Jesus, I think it's clear that the whole point is not for you to do your best, but to believe in Jesus. For those of us who do have a relationship with Jesus, the whole point to living out this Christian life is not for us to do our best to please God. We have to realize that we cannot please God apart from Jesus. And then from there, realize that he gives us a new heart and puts a spirit within us to cause us to walk in his ways. So let us be attuned and attentive to the spirit that he gives us as we read his word, as we walk about daily life to make sure that we are, we are doing what he has called us to do and telling others about the good news of Jesus, about discipling others, about bringing others into this kingdom. Let us not get confused as we make New Year's resolutions to make doing better a resolution for Jesus because he's not called us to do better. He's called us to sit at his feet and to rest and to realize that there's nothing that we can do to please him so that we as followers of Jesus then could tell others about this good news. It's not about what you do and don't do. 
Sin has broken all of us. And Jesus has paid the penalty for that. The band's gonna come out and, and sing a song here in a minute. Um, I believe, maybe not, maybe I've been duped. Maybe I've talked too long, that's probably what's happened. Um, but uh, they're gonna come out, I think, and sing a song and we're gonna worship Jesus this morning. So what I want you to do is prepare your hearts uh, to think about what God has done for us in Jesus. As we, as we sing these words again, let us think about the work that God has done for us in him and worship him for who he is and what he's done, not for what he's given us to, to follow or what we can do on our own. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for the work that you've done in our lives. We thank you for the ways that you provide for us. And we thank you for um, your word that we can see in it, that there's nothing that we can do to please you. God, that you've called us to trust in Jesus, to see him, to sit at his feet and realize he's done the work. So God, let us not be in danger of missing the whole point of this whole thing. That we come here week in and week out not to check a box, but to worship you, to do what you've asked us to do as we follow you. Let us, be, let us be found doing the work you've called us to do in making disciples, telling others about the good news that's only found in Jesus. We ask this in his name, amen.